All right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the second episode of uh, Games Industry Law Summit's community podcast. And today we have Brian joining from uh, Seoul and Felix joining from, I guess, Cologne. Yes, Cologne. Hi, guys. Hi, Sergey. Hi, Sergey. Everyone is in different time zones, so uh, we're connecting when uh, Brian has uh, late afternoon and uh, Felix probably just woke up and is drinking coffee. Uh, the, uh, the, the, let's start with uh, how are your countries dealing with uh, the current pandemic? As anyway, that's an unavoidable topic these days. So I know Germany has been very impressive with low mortality number and South Korea has been on the front page of uh, pretty much every new outlet. So let's start with uh, South Korea. Are you guys proud? Is it typical? Like, are you in the celebratory mood or not yet? No, not yet. Um, we were proud about a month and a half ago, and then that huge uh, religious cult epicenter took place. So this time around, we are being more cautious in our outlook. Um, but right now, the situation looks like we have been able to um, at least control domestic uh, occurrences but we are now dealing with uh, a, a large number of people actually fleeing uh, other countries and coming back to Korea. You know, maybe they were studying abroad or were on an extended business trip or simply were on a honeymoon. And we're getting an increasing number of these, uh, uh, some of them expats, others just tourists coming back to Korea and then finding out that they had contracted coronavirus while they were in, you know, it could have been Italy, United States, Germany, wherever. So we're dealing with that issue right now. And and uh, in terms of response, have you seen any discussions about the privacy protection? Because there's there's now also this ongoing discussion that uh, to curb the epidemics, the state has to step up and become more active and aggressive. And people are afraid that, uh, at least in Europe, this could result in the state keeping those extra powers and saying, yes, we want your location, we want your private data, and we are not giving it back to you after this is over. Well, actually, we did have the discussion, um, but to start with, um, our privacy law, the Personal Information Protection Act, the PIPA, does have an exception for this type of utilization uh, and or disclosure to the public if it is uh, permitted by another statute. And in our case right now, it it's yeah, the Epidemics Prevention Act, which uh, authorizes the Ministry of Health to utilize uh, people's personal information to prevent the occurrence of epidemics. So that's how, that was the basis for um, the government uh, utilizing you know, people's location information, their credit card uh, usage, their G GPS and whatever else to uh, trace people. Um, but when we first started um, you know, testing and tracing, testing and tracing, we were uh, releasing very, very detailed information on every person who had uh, who were infected. So you had like uh, patient number one who went to this store at nine o'clock in the morning, stayed there for 15 minutes and went to a restaurant, stayed there for an hour and a half. And then, you know, took a cab over to the beach and stayed there for like, you know, whatever. Um, but it got to the point where um, it became more it, it 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 led to a ridicule on the online space because people started looking at where the people were going under the current situation and you know making comments oh why why were you going to a club <laughs> where there's a massive <laughs> number of people uh or there was even a case where uh, uh this married man and a single woman ended up and the same hotel at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and they were being ridiculed and, you know, they, oh and the government had revised yeah, the, the, the volume of information that's being uh, disclosed now. So it's a little bit more uh, toned down. They're releasing a less information, but still enough so that people uh, could report or try to get tested if they were uh, at, the, at the same facility or same location at the same time. Uh, and even without that, you know, our uh, the the 
government office at different levels send us uh, these text messages if they think you had come into contact with somebody else who's already contracted. Okay, we, we had we had here we had uh, a little bit of fight between the city and the state, where the city wanted to have all that information that you mentioned and maybe more, and the state was very afraid of releasing any information, thinking that they could breach the privacy. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, there is no framework yet for. Um, doing this in emergency situations. But then, yeah, we got the list and it was just as you say, someone comes back from Italy and then next day you can see the movements and it's like he went to the supermarket then he went to a concert. And if you're sitting at one of those six tables next to the person, you have to go and check yourself. And you're like, why would you do this? It's, you just came from a high risk area. Like, yeah, so then that got toned down and they stopped also identifying the specific villages. Uh, so that they can protect some uh, some of the private information. But Felix, for you and in Germany, are you guys having the same thing? Do you have those lists of where people went and you should take care no, of it? No, no, no. We, we, I mean, Germany basically invented privacy in in, in the <laughs> 1980s when, when there was supposed to be a census and a lot of people uh, were up in arms against that and said, we don't want the government to know things about us. And that led to court cases and that led ultimately to, to a um, federal um, privacy act, which, uh, which in many ways has been the model for, for GDPR. Um, so we, we take this stuff very seriously and we're, we're having the discussion. I mean, these scenarios sound completely far out to, to a German or to a European privacy lawyer to, to publish lists of this person was here and there and then have the, the corona divorce because two people that shouldn't have met ended up in the same place. It, it kind of reminds me of, of those stories we had around 9-11 where the wife would call the husband and say, where are you? And he's well, in the office, but the office, in fact, didn't exist anymore <laughs> because they were with somebody else somewhere else. So, no, we, we don't do that kind of stuff, but um, there is a discussion around using anonymized um, mobile phone data to just to give to, to the epidemiologists to help them study how does this virus spread and, and that kind of stuff. There has been a discussion about using phone data to potentially warn people that have been in contact with um, confirmed cases. But right now, the status of that discussion is more like, well, that would have been useful when we have three, four, five, six cases. Now we have 30,000 cases. It's too much information. It, it won't work that way. Um, but the corona infection is a reportable infectious disease. So if, if you test positive, the local authorities will get in touch with you and will make you tell them who the people are that you've been in contact with and where you were, and then they will try and notify just those people that are concerned. But we wouldn't publish this kind of information for everyone to see and to to kind of uh, just out of curiosity look at. And I think that, I mean, y you would also have to look at how, how detailed and how specific is this information. Could you really say this person sat at that table and these persons sat at the six tables around it? It would probably be much less granular than that. It would probably say there's an, uh, an infection case and he was in a restaurant in this street, but whether it's this one or the one next door is maybe even hard to tell. So um, you, would, you would basically scare off a number of people that went to the other restaurant that that person hasn't <laughs> even set foot in. So, I mean, it sounds like the opposite approach of what we see in Korea or even here. Uh, when you mentioned the concert and the tables, we actually had this list that said if you were at sitting at the tables 34, 35, 37 and 38, so you understand that someone is there at 36 and then, you know, it's not very difficult to understand who was at that table and then you get down the names. So it's pretty identifiable, I would say. Well, if, if, you, if you still remember, because... It, it may be that that person sat there a week before developing symptoms and the test results come back a couple of days after they got tested when they developed symptoms. So, I mean, do you remember the number of the table you sat at at a restaurant two weeks ago? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah, okay. So, so I can see that Germany is taking a different direction than that. Uh, and, and, and do you see any changes uh, that could potentially influence the games industry or how games industry is regulated in your regions just because of that lockdown and because of all these measures or that's a separate universe? 
Only Korea, it's a separate issue. We um, basically don't have any particular um, tendency towards more or less regulation of anything um, because of um, because of the coronavirus. Other than uh, government subsidizing the companies to give uh, more, you know, paid uh, sick leaves to the employees or and. Uh, if the, uh, the company needs to shut down for a time being, uh, you know, under Korean labor law, uh, the company still needs to pay the employees certain amount of their uh, ordinary wage and the government is subsidizing that. But um, I guess the, the only thing is really the game companies are doing really well in Korea because everybody's <laughs> saying, you know, playing games. <laughs> we, yeah, we've... It's basically the same here, I think. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of, of measures that are, are meant to just help the economy as a whole. So um, uh, what Brian mentioned, the, the subsidies for, for workers that work fewer hours or, or don't work at all, um, and, and a, number of, um, a number of other measures. There's subsidies, there's, there's uh, loans that are easy to get. Um, there's discussion now about just suspending um, payment deadlines and, and allowing people to just stretch payments over a longer period of time. Mostly, you know, if you if you're falling behind on your rent or or stuff like that. So um, there, there's talk about about all of those, but none of them are specific for the games industry. And um, I mean, if you have a massive development team sitting somewhere, I've heard from from some of our clients that it was a logistical effort to have to to get designers to take the big graphics tablets home. Um, but they somehow managed, and now everybody seems to be working from home. Uh, that's that's a challenge. But if you have a, a finished product out there and you're just doing live ops, um, this is probably a good time for you because people have <laughs> more time to be to be playing your game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 number of users uh, shot through the sky. The revenue went up as well. Uh, so then you have to look at the other considerations like currencies becoming weaker. So Turkish lira is going down. Russian ruble is going down. So. If you're a company that makes uh, a significant chunk of revenue in that country, then uh, yeah, your revenue goes up in the local currency, but maybe falls down in the global uh, balance sheet. But yeah, I, I spoke to City Project uh, yesterday, and they said that uh, within a day, everyone made the transition to working from home. And uh, the next day, they had this uh, morning call with uh, people in pajamas and with their cats and dogs. Um, that Roman at Wargaming said that. Uh, to some of their development team, it, it, it took 24 hours to download the assets just because the assets were so heavy, but uh, they did transition. I spoke to Yanis in Cyprus yesterday, and he was saying that now finally people are starting to take it seriously, so more people will actually stop going to the office because they introduced the mandatory lockdown uh, for anything except the essential services. So so like I think, yeah, games industry is pretty well set to transition and to work from home uh, as long as you can set up this communication. Finland reported 4,000 startup companies applying for state support. So that's quite different. I mean, when you think about the companies who will ask for state support, you think of restaurants, uh, I don't know, shops, retail shops. But if you look at the numbers in Finland, then you can see that also tech companies are using that opportunity to get uh, whatever help they can get. And uh, I guess uh, the big question will be which country will help its games industry the most? Like, do you really think the countries will think, oh, it's affected? Or, you know, they'll say, ah, good for you, so <laughs> no need to. So it's compensator. But uh, let's jump. Let's jump a little bit to to who you guys are for um, the people who uh, haven't met you before. So so if you can start with Brian, and maybe Brian can introduce yourself and say what's your experience uh, uh, over the last years and uh, outside of the games industry, what are your proficiencies? Okay, well, I'm Brian Chung. Um, I'm a lawyer at the uh, law firm of Kim and Chang in Seoul, Korea. Uh, we are the largest law firm in Korea by far uh, and probably the most internationalized uh, law firm. Basically, uh, I'm not, I'm not a, a Korean licensed lawyer. I'm a U.S. I'm a New York bar, uh, New York licensed lawyer. And we have the largest collection of U.S. licensed lawyers 
outside of the United States. So, <laughs> us by itself is one of the largest offices uh, of the U.S. Uh, licensed lawyers. Um, if we were, you know, one of the other French offices, um, but uh, we uh, have been in business since 1973. I joined Kim and Chang in 1997. Uh, and stayed with the firm for so long. Uh, it's kind of amazing to me too, because most of my friends from law school are no longer at their law firms. Um, so it's a, I it's started a, out, yeah. But it's yeah, a national right. law firm, or is it like, do you have offices in different countries, or is it just the the the, the uh, Korean office or Korean offices, but that's it? Well, we are still mostly national. We only have um, office in Seoul. Uh, we just uh, recently opened up, well, a few years ago, we had a liaison office in Hong Kong. And we just uh, recently opened up uh, office in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And we were thinking of opening an office in Singapore this year, but uh, I need to talk to my <laughs> colleagues about how that plan is going. <laughs> And how big is the firm? Uh, if you and here's a question: Like, how do you measure? Do you measure lawyers, or do you measure lawyers and everyone else, like all the employees? I think the best uh, terminology is that we measure the fee owners because we not only have lawyers who are either you know Korean licensed or U.S. or you know Finland uh, licensed lawyers, but we also have uh, a lot of accountants who do tax work, uh, patent attorneys who are not lawyers by themselves under Korean law. We also have uh, advisors who are like former government officials, either very senior or very junior government officials. And so we count the other fee owners. And if you do, we are at about uh, 1,200. Hmm. That's, that's, that's quite impressive. Uh... So, so, so you've been with the firm for a long time. Is it normal for people? Uh, is there any specifics in Korea for uh, building a career in a law firm? Is it common that people change every five years, ten years, or like every twenty years, like Paul Gardner? <laughs> um, it's actually uh, not common for people to move around. Um, it, it, in Korea, uh, just like in any other uh, industries, legal uh, professionals have the concept of, you know lifetime career you, you know you join uh kim and chang you're here for life you know just like if you join samsung you're there for life you're a samsung man or lg woman for life now that trend is changing a bit but still uh when you join a law firm basically you're making a commitment and you want to stay there you want to build up your career as a games lawyer or an antitrust lawyer or a privacy lawyer and uh, because you know, we were founded only very recently in 1973, you know, our founding partners are still active. So um, no one has really retired yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> no one knows how that works. <laughs> no one knows when we're actually going to retire. But, um, but recently we have seen um, you know, people uh, changing directions, uh, either going to another law firm. We've been also hiring a lot of our lateral partners from other law firms. Uh, obviously, there are now a bunch of people uh, deciding to go in-house um, and then uh, finding someone, you know, going off in a different direction. I have, I have a friend who uh, only one day uh, decided that he wanted to be a baseball agent. So now he, he's a uh, Baseball agent for a Korean baseball league. <laughs> well, that, okay. I mean, I know some U.S. law law to managing game studios, and uh, typically, uh, if you've been at a law firm for I don't know ten years, then you go in house and very happy about this, less stress, more long-term focus, and so on. If you do the other way around, then you, of course, join the law firm and say, finally, some excitement. I don't need to take care of the operations and leasing agreements and everything like that. Uh, great, okay. And, and in terms of associates and partners, you have the same system that when you join the firm, you're junior associate, then you sort of grow up, rank up, and then you become a partner? Well, it's actually an interesting story because uh, Korea didn't have... Uh, partnership as one of the recognized forms of a law firm for quite a long time. 
Uh, now, you know, that legal concept was introduced and many of the other, other law firms uh, are in the form of a partnership. So they actually do have partners, meaning that they have financial stake in their organization and the associates who are associates. Uh, so we do have that system, but Kim and Chang still uh, maintains to our traditional system. We are legally speaking a collection of individual law offices. And uh, so instead of partners and associates, we have juniors and seniors. And I think this uh, will lead to some of your uh, next questions is that uh, we started the uh, practice of sending our juniors mostly to United States to obtain their LLM degrees after about six, seven years of practice. And so when they came back from that study abroad program, they would be viewed as uh, seniors and take on the role that the partners play in other law firms. Okay. And uh, so, so, so you're in that sort of structure where you progress through the ranks and you uh, become, I guess, more influential in terms of defining the firm strategy and where the firm is going and whether or not uh, it, you should open up uh, an office in Singapore or maybe not. <laughs> uh, and in terms of financial reward, is there a big difference in this transition or it's gradual and the, you know, making a partner is not the biggest big change in your life? Um, there is a significant uh, upward increase when you come back from the, uh, the study abroad program. But after that, uh, we're still on uh, sort of a lockstep basis. So it, it's not like when there's a really, really booming year, everybody's only getting huge bonus at the end of the year. So we are more, um, in a sense, financially uh, prudent, you know, preparing for days like this year. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's a good point. And Felix, for you, could you could you uh, cover uh, backgrounds when you joined the current firm? Did you work at a different firm before? And uh, uh, what does it mean that you've become a partner this year? Well, I've been I've been with Osborne Clark um, for as as long as I remember, more or less. I joined as a law student in my second year of law school, more than 15 years ago, and then I've been with the firm ever since. With two or three little exceptions where I went elsewhere but um, to just gain some experience or for other reasons uh, but it was always clear that I was going to be coming back so um, when I met my my wife who's Canadian I decided that I needed to go to Canada for a while so I, I got a work and travel visa and I got uh, they, they let me go for a year but I came back and and um, I still consider myself to sort of in my heart have been with OC through that time as well and Osborne Clark is is a. Uh, it sounds like a British firm. You guys used to have a lion in the logo, then the lion went away. So, is this like a primarily a British international firm, or is it British German or French? It's. I mean, historically, it was a, an English firm, but it is. It's now really an, an international firm with with offices in in many countries across Europe and Asia. And we even have one in India that's not officially ours, but um, it was founded by a former Osborne Clark partner, and we work with them uh, on a very close and, and trusted basis. But for regulatory reasons, we they, they can't be an Osborne Clark office because Indian law firms can't can't do that. Um, so the the lion was uh, in in Germany we called him a panther, and in in the in the UK they called it just the orange cat because that works nicely <laughs> with OC. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, he's gone. Um, uh, right. But um, I mean, things things just change and evolve. Um, historically, the German offices were the first offices outside of England that that the firm opened, and for a while that was one one entity. But now we we're just um, uh, we have one international Osborne Clark entity with the national businesses underneath it. So it's it's a Swiss Verein. Uh, with with the national businesses under it, and we we cover most of Europe, and we have we do have an office in Singapore, and one in Shanghai, and one in Hong Kong, but and not in Seoul. Not in Seoul. Um, okay. And we do have two in the U.S. One in New York, and one in the Silicon Valley. It's kind of split between Palo Alto and, and downtown San Francisco. Uh, but we have a very small collection of U.S. lawyers, i.e., zero, 
uh, because we don't do any American <laughs> law. Uh, we just use those U.S. offices to um, provide European and, and Asian legal advice to, to our clients in the U.S. Okay. And in Germany, you guys are based in Cologne or you have several offices? Yeah, Cologne is the biggest one, the, the mothership, but we have Berlin and Hamburg and Munich as well. Okay, Berlin and Hamburg. Okay, so four offices in Germany. And you've been you've been dealing mostly with, uh, uh, in addition to the games industry matters, you've been dealing with uh, technology or privacy, or how, how would you uh, describe your own experience? Um, yeah, technology, I think, uh, sums it up. There's always a little bit of privacy in that. It's just unavoidable. Um, and, and also with with all the games industry clients obviously privacy is a, a big topic in, in many things that we do so it's it's uh, always a part of my practice but we also have dedicated people that do nothing but privacy so i would i would say those are the privacy folks and i'm the tech and games guy uh, so other than, than the games industry i work a lot for just software companies big ones and small ones um and help them with uh, with their licensing contracts and just commercial contracts negotiations a big part of what i do um is is to kind of mediate between europeans and americans when it comes to commercial <laughs> contracts because the americans will go in and they'll say well you've got a 90-day warranty and our, our our liability is limited to $100 And American and, and, and Germans will say that's outrageous. We want two years warranty, and we don't want your liability capped at all. And then you have to start explaining that you know, Americans do this not because they want to be they want to cheat you. Um, they just do that because punitive damages are a thing in America, but they're not in Germany. And so you go back and forth, and 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 in the end, hopefully, get a compromise and, and explain to both sides kind of where the other one's coming from. That's that's a big part of of my contracts practice okay so so that that brings me to to the next point i wanted to raise with you guys is uh what is your take on uh, game studios that have the uh, revenue i mean so so one way of looking at the game studios and legal field is that if you scale up to certain revenue uh then it makes sense to have Uh, an in-house lawyer so that that lawyer can uh, take care of the risks as your risks scale with uh, the revenue that's coming in. On the other side, you can also say that there's certain level of complexity in the business. So uh, when we talk, for example, to Wargaming, Wargaming likes to say that, okay, there's also the revenue and then there's the complexity in the sense that we are on consoles, we're mobile, we're on free-to-play space. So. Uh, there's a lot of different segments and sections and countries. And once you get into that, then you do need to have an in-house legal team and you need to work with uh, law firms extensively. But I also know a bunch of uh, game studios, including one that is publicly listed that doesn't have any in-house lawyers. And my question is, when you deal with clients in Korea and Germany, um, in the games industry, do you have a typical profile of the sort of a games company that uh, knows how to work with law firms and can benefit of working with law firms. And then the games company that you wouldn't even try to talk to, you know, someone says, hey, do you want to meet this company? And you look at the company's profile and like, yeah, you know what, probably not. Or it's just a wild mix. Like Brian, for you in Korea, games companies and the legal field, is it like, are you guys friends, games companies? know how to use law firms and go to law firms or there's the same mix and match and distancing and some games companies say we don't care yeah i think it's <clears throat> i think it's a mix and match um just like any other industry um the ones who are more established the big three uh korean game companies as well as some of the other global ones in here like uh, let's say blizzard or riot games They have their own in-house staff. They know how to um, utilize us, how to work with us. Um, but then, then there are smaller studios, whether local or global, who doesn't have any uh, legal staff, as, uh, as you said. I was, I was uh, working with this one studio that actually didn't have a general counsel and were actually uh, borrowing the services of the general counsel of another company for their business. Um, <laughs> But in, even in those situations, my experience has been that there are people from the business, whether it's the biz dev person or whoever sending me email, uh, has been practicing or working with law firms that way for so long 
that they might as well be general counsels. They just don't have a law degree, and they know how to work with us. Everything from、uh, initiating contact to asking us the right questions,、uh, giving us guidance on what the product is that they are looking for, and also discussing how, let's say, our fee arrangement will work out. So basically, someone who knows how to work with law firms, as opposed to a game studio that just has something happening in Korea, and they、uh, have no clue about how this works. So they're sending you, like, emailing you, and saying, "Hey, we have this deal coming, or we have this risk on the radar," and and、uh, walk us through, you know, how much will it cost to make it go away, <laughs> and all that sort of thing. No, that happens. That happens. That happens. But I, I think. Um, just like many of the law firms that you know, Sergey and Felix, our strength is in being able to provide、uh, the right、uh, level of service to those clients、uh, for their budgetary needs. You know, if there is a huge, let's say,、uh, criminal investigation for some money laundering done through their item trading system, then yeah, I don't, I don't think they'd be a They would want to want to have like a fee cap arrangement,、um, but if you if they're asking uh, to uh, enter into like a publishing contract for the first time with a Korean publisher, then obviously we would also tailor uh, uh, our members who work on that matter、uh, so that we can provide the most efficient,、uh, let's say, comments on the other、uh, publishing contract. And for you, Felix, is it is it a similar experience that they have uh, uh, different uh, clients with different needs, or generally Germans are more、uh, I don't know reliant on the legal services? Because I know a bunch of German studios and they prefer to keep as much space as possible between themselves and any lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean,、um, I I think. It's very similar to what what Brian said, especially the the last bit really resonates with me.、Um, that you know, different companies of a different size and with different problems will need a different kind of legal service. And、um, as much as we're a large firm, and obviously our our rates are not what you know an individual solo practitioner down the street might charge. Um, we still try to find arrangements that that will work for for everyone, and because we work with a lot of startup companies, we we do have that experience of how do you talk to, you know, the head of a large legal department, and how do you talk to the founder that just started his games development company and has six, seven, eight people,、um, and and of course they're very different conversations, and they. Very different things are in focus for for these different people. The general counsel of the massive multinational publisher might be thinking about compliance and about how is this、uh, privacy bit that we're talking about here going to work under the new Californian privacy laws, and how is it going to work in in China and Russia and elsewhere.、Um, whereas the the small startup company is more going to think like, how can we do this so we won't get sued or fined in the next year. So it's a it's a different type of advice. My the, the the fastest ever publishing deal that I was involved with、uh, took an hour of my time, and it was just okay. We need the money. We have this offer.、Um, is there anything in there that really should make us walk away, even though we need the money? And then I looked at it, and we we tweaked a few little things to make a few things better and more clear, and sent it back. And they said, okay, we can do that, and and that was it. And of course, if Someone came to me with that same contract and said, "Okay,、um, turn this contract into something that we really, really like."、Uh, it would have taken ten times that, and we would have had to negotiate it back and forth and back and forth. But that was just not what they needed at that point. Oh, okay. So, so、oh, yeah, that reminds me of a situation.、Uh, one of the developers I know was doing a deal with German publisher, and the developer sent a contract and said,、uh, "You know." Can you look and, and 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 tell me if it's a good contract or not? And the contract was pretty long, and it wasn't good. I mean, I wouldn't say it's 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 a good contract for a studio. If, for example, I would be buying that studio and looking at the contract and saying, "Well, shit, why did you sign that?" And, but 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 before I、uh, made any comments, I was like, "So,、uh, what's your flexibility?" And the guy said, "I need the money within two weeks." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so basically, unless you know he's selling himself 
slavery, uh, anything else is fine because he really had no money to go. Uh, that was the only offer on the table, so I was like, really no issue. But uh, do you guys find that the budget is more important or less important when, uh, say, established large companies work with you? Uh, so as, as the studio, let's say, gets revenue going up, the studio starts to uh, look at the risks and then they start having big issues that they've never had before. And this takes a lot of time uh, and that raises the budgets. And so they're starting to look at the uh, bills uh, for law firms and say, oh my God, we're paying tens of thousands of euros. Um, and then eventually as the company becomes big, I guess there is a budgeting process that the company says, okay, this year we plan to spend on law firms, I don't know, 5 million, 10 million. Uh, so do you like feel that as the company gets bigger and more structured, there is more uh, pressure for, for the budgets or it depends on the company and some companies just go for the quality of work and trust you to be fair with the budget? Um, it, it, it's a different kind of budget pressure, I think. Um, for, for smaller companies, sometimes you'll tell them, well, I, I need five hours to do this. And, and out of those five hours, three hours is just reading all the material and understanding what's going on. I can't really cut down on that because I need to know what's going on so I can provide advice. Um, then it's, it, it's very different if we're talking about, can I use three hours or four hours on something? In, in a bigger project, um, it's it's more the thing that they say we don't want to pay for any unnecessary work we want you to be efficient we don't want to be billed for three lawyers on on every call and then if it's a large project we can also invest into that relationship and and say okay fine it makes sense for me to have a junior associate on the call so that i don't have to spend time explaining to them what's going on when they're taking over a piece of that of that project um, so if the client says, I'm only paying for one lawyer on each call, fine, okay, that is an hour that the junior is going to spend on the call that we're not going to bill, but ultimately it's a big project. Of course, I can't do that if the, the volume of the project is only three, four hours, then I can't give one of those hours away. Um, so, um, it's, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a different approach depending on whether you're really... Uh, looking at every penny before you spend it or whether you're just saying we have enough money to get this project done we're going to spend the money we need we just don't want to waste it on on something that's pointless and and in that case we often have the requests for you know flat fees and alternative arrangements as well because for for the bigger companies and for as you say for the for the budget bit it's often important for them to it's not important whether it costs a hundred thousand or a hundred twenty thousand. It's just important that they know before, so they can allocate that accordingly. Yeah, my experience has been the same too, <clears throat> and I don't think there is a need to single out game industry as an industry where companies have special needs for budgets or they're like free spending, uh, go 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 type. Um, it's just like any other industry. Now we're seeing number of clients who are asking for alternative fee arrangements rather than the traditional um, hourly rate uh, basis. And it doesn't matter whether it's the game industry or uh, it's a you know, petrochemical industry or whatever. Uh, it, it really depends on each company's internal culture and policy. Um, and maybe like in smaller studios, for example, perhaps the other characteristics of like their you know, founder you know, is he or she a penny pincher or is he or she willing to pay a good money for a significant project mm -hmm. and in terms of the conflict of interest uh, that, that that's the issue that we've been discussing uh, across different regions recently do you like what are the rules in germany what are the rules in korea in the sense that let's say there are two competing free-to-play companies and would you be able to work with both would you be able to for example work with google but then go against google because google is such a huge company or or if you you know take up a commission from google then you uh will not be able to go and chase them but all the like is it is there a strategy in your regions that that a company can hire you for something small 
just as an insurance that you will not go against them in the future because they think, for example, you know, Kim and Chang is such a strong firm. Uh, let's just, you know, keep them, keep them on the retainer, do a little thing here so that, uh, I don't know, Blue Hall doesn't go against us and uses Kim and Chang against us. And, and the same for Germany. Like, is it regulated? Is it just ethics? Is it up to the firm itself? Brian, do you want to start? Sure. Um, in Korea, we do have um, ethics rules on conflicts, um, but what it, what it prevents is the other legal conflict. That is, if you know company A is suing company B, then you cannot represent uh, both sides in that. But anything else is uh, pretty much viewed as a commercial conflict, and in those instances, you either can represent you know three, four, five, six different companies in the same uh, industry, or if there is a potential uh, conflict of interest that could arise, we uh, try to obtain consent. Um, but you also have to understand some uh, unique nature of the Korean legal market, where you really only have like five or six law firms that are experienced enough that have language capabilities to handle um, global transactions or clients from other countries. So uh, when, you know, like for example, Kim and Chang, we represent a vast majority of uh, companies in let's say a pharmaceutical industry where they may be uh, you know, competing with each other on a day-to-day -day basis, but they just don't have the option of going to other <laughs> law firm who do not have that long-established pharmaceutical practice. Uh, I think game industry is a bit different because there are smaller boutique law firms uh, who, you know, for uh, however they did it, but do have some relationship, long-standing relationship with uh, the studios or the publishers. And so there are some smaller companies, but in the end, uh, I'd like to say, you really get what you pay for. You really want to win this one particular lawsuit or do you want a successful transaction? Um, you go to the best that money can buy. So, so basically, outside of the direct conflict or participating in the same case against each other or representing two games firms at the same time and let's say one goes against the other everything else is is up to the commercial ethics discussions it's about your reputation how your firm handles this and uh how yeah, do you agree yeah, with clients it's, yeah. yeah it's actually more of a choice of the clients uh like kim and chan represents both google and apple for example and, okay. uh, <laughs> They choose to use us because they think, uh, despite the other uh, potential commercial conflict and maybe at some point, you know, potential legal conflict, for now, they are okay with using us for their day-to-day -day needs. Okay, Felix, and for Germany, would this be a, would this be possible that, let's say, one German firm represents both Apple and Google, and then also a developer that needs to extract some data from YouTube, which is owned by Google. So on behalf of that developer, just go against Google. Yeah, yeah, it. it's it, it, it is definitely possible uh, to to work for for all of these companies. Um, the rules, I think, are, are pretty similar from from what I understand uh, how, it, how it works in, in Korea. Um, you can't be on both sides of the same of this, the, the same issue, the same case, the same contract, obviously. Um, and then acting against a client that you're advising otherwise, you have to be a little bit careful because because you would you, you might also fall into the into the legal conflict if you are starting to uh, you know sue someone over a contract that you've negotiated. You you put yourself <laughs> in a very in a in a very bad position there. So so these legal conflicts they're they're actually criminal offenses. So we, we really can't do that, and we obviously have a, systems in place to, to make sure that we we're aware and we we decline those those uh, cases if we get them. But if you're working for Apple or Google or Microsoft or or any of the or Amazon, any of the big ones, um, these are companies that are so big that I think they are used to the fact that uh, it's just not possible to avoid any and all um, 
instances where a law firm that they may have used on one thing now is up against them on an, on a different thing. So um, it's really then just a, a commercial thing where you talk to the company and you say, hey, um, I have this developer now who wants to negotiate this contract against uh, against uh, whatever or has this issue with with the with the app store and. Um, can we can we help them with that? And, and normally they'll all say yes. We do see um, very occasionally that strategy that someone says, okay, well, we'll, we'll hire this firm so they can't ever go up against us. Um, in those cases, they'll often say in, um, or, or, the, or so they can't work for a competitor. In those cases, they'll often say in, in, the, in the retainer, we're only retaining you if you promise not to work for such and such competitor. And we've accepted that in a few cases, um, but we would only accept that in a case where we actually get, you know, really significant business from that company. So if someone just hiring us and giving us a small piece of work just to make sure that we can't ever pursue any other opportunities with, with other companies in a specific space, uh, that, that would just not work because at some point we just say, okay, either you give us more work or we'll just um, drop you as a client because uh, we're free to do that as well. So um, it's it's not that, that that trick won't work if it's really just a trick. It'll only work if you really are interested in, in creating that um, longstanding relationship and, and actually both sides profit from it. But then it's no problem. I think Disney was famous for the strategy where they would go into every major city in america and just hire the best local offer and give them a bit of work and then make sure that no one really has the guns to go after them because uh, they have the best team in town already signed up but uh, so so as we need to wrap up the last question that i have for you guys is when you're working with international clients for korea and for germany uh, what are the most the like, top issues right now that the international clients not korean clients are asking you or, or are concerned about as far as the Korean market is concerned? Is there some general topic that uh, you see that the majority of global companies with business in Korea are concerned about X, Y, Z, and this is what they are like sort of trying to sort out this this year and, and, and the same in Germany? Or, or it or totally depends on the company and on the product? Um. <clears throat> Because of the, uh, the pure accident of history, it actually has been number one privacy. <laughs> because uh, we just uh, amended our privacy laws, uh, had a very significant amendment to, amendment to uh, back in March. So that was the, uh, no, not back in March, back in uh, January. That was a huge topic for everybody. Um, but then it all became force majeure. Uh -huh. um, everybody's asking me about force majeure. I, I, I spoke to Amy at Riot Games and she said she hasn't read so many clauses in her life ever as she's done <laughs> in the last few months. Because everyone suddenly remembers and opens those clauses and what exactly I mean. And yeah. Okay. And, and, and then, of course, the regulation. I guess still the ongoing issue is compliance with the regulation for free to play and all the disclosures that you need to do. Well, that's, you know, that's been there forever and ever. Um, and we've had some court cases about the loot boxes and disclosures about the odds of the loot boxes that come out. Um, but those were more uh, more of a nature of just doing business in Korea. Uh, it's just part of, you know, what you need to get over in order to uh, actually conduct a business in Korea. So. Those were the topics that people were really asking me about. Again, the other topic uh, was number one, privacy, and number two, uh, um, arbitration slash litigation. But then again, now force majeure. Everybody wants to know what the Korean laws are force majeure. Mm -hmm. And for for Felix, for you in Germany, is there, yeah. outside of privacy, yes. <laughs> the inventors of privacy. <laughs> yeah, so uh, force majeure also comes up a little bit now. Um, I've had a few a few questions. Um, also, in my area of practice and with with the companies that that I do a lot of work with, so games and and social media and other other media companies, um, they're looking across all of Europe at the the implementation of the audiovisual media services directive. 
uh, which will which will uh, bring about some youth protection um, requirements uh, that are very similar to what Germany has had for a long time, but um, pretty alien to other European jurisdictions. So um, I get a lot of questions about that and how how we've been doing it in Germany for a while because it'll, it 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 might help them, you know, deal with what is coming out of other European countries. And then in Germany per se, we we have a draft youth protection reform act now on the books that we're not really sure right now what what the status really is amid all the corona stuff but um, the the <laughs> plan was one of the last events that i attended before events <laughs> were all canceled was um a, a discussion a panel discussion in berlin with a bunch of uh, politicians um uh, about that reform where the government seemed to be saying, yeah, no, we're, we're pushing ahead with that and, and, and it's going to come. And that will change a few of the paradigms of youth protection in, in Germany, which the system is already quite complex and it's going to get even a little bit more complicated. And um, the way that we do age ratings for games uh, will change and, and age labels are now supposed to include also not just what is the content of the game, but also is there in-app purchases, is there a chat, uh, is there something that you know could put kids at risk of being of being victims to cyber mobbing and bullying and cyber grooming and 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 all those kinds of things? And and there will be a number of new rules for platforms as well. How they need to deal with user generated content. They need to um, they need to take certain precautions to make sure that if anything inappropriate pops up in in terms of user generated content they need to filter it out or they need to ha at least have a way to report it and, and, and then deal with it um, and the details of that are, are quite complicated and I get a lot of questions about that. what can okay. be done to, to prepare for that so it's, it's pretty helpful to developers I guess that they look at this regulation and they see all the stuff that they have to declare and then you have to ask yourself if you want to do that stuff in the game <laughs> uh, we, we uh, didn't do a chat in the game for uh, multiple reasons mostly based on experience of games that had chat and had to struggle with moderating it controlling it so we just said no chat and now I <laughs> need to declare it that we don't have any chat uh, so as a developer, I would just take a look at this list and say, let's remove all those features. Yeah, well, if you start removing all of the features that are somehow caught by this new by this new act, then you won't have a fun game anymore. You won't have a game at all. Uh, because <laughs> there's always going to be some level of, of interaction. One of the one of the points that I think are really bad in this in this new law is that um, it may lead to a game having a a certain rating on one platform and a different rating on a different platform because one platform has a way for parents to turn off in-app purchases mm -hmm. and the other one doesn't, for example. Mm -hmm. Or or has a way of, of turning off in-game chat and the other platform doesn't. Or oh, so that like pushes, that. That, that puts the pressure on the platforms to, to basically evolve on all features. Uh, we had, I don't know if you guys have seen the Brazilian updates on the uh, age rating system where you self-rate. Uh, there's a long list of questions, and some of them are not uh, obvious. So when we rated our game, we're like, you know, is there anyone smoking or taking drugs? And I think like smoking and taking drugs was in the same sentence. So we do have one character who smokes a cigar, but he's not taking drugs. But, but you basically click that box and, and then you realize, okay, you know what, now we can have actually characters uh, you know sniffing cocaine and everything because anyway we we hit that button so yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's worked as a way of like suggesting if you look at the brazilian market then if you have someone smoking just go all the way you know them fight and rip their heads off in the same category great so so last the question is what do you think when do you think you know we'll be back to normal quote unquote uh yeah, in your let's say part of the world, in terms of like economy going back, oh, not really economy going back, but let's say society going back to normal, having meetings again. Good question. Say, a few months, end of summer. Oh, let's say, let me let me put it differently. Do you think before the end of the year in Europe, or let's say in Asia, taking in? China, Korea, Japan, the the situation will be more or less under control, and 
and people will work productively towards uh, going out of this thing or you think it'll spill over into next year i think it's i think and i hope it will be this year um I mean, the hopes were, I think, from from what you're reading from from scientists, that oh, maybe in the summer this will go away because the virus doesn't like the heat. But then, yeah, when yeah. we look at the way it's spreading in all sorts of places that are not cold right now, um, I don't I don't know what to make of that. Um, I think that we may have. I mean, by the end of the year, that's really in terms of medical research that's a long time so maybe we'll have a drug that really targets this virus and and really makes it not more scary and not more dangerous than than any other infectious disease out there the flu or whatever uh, maybe we'll have a vaccine um, or maybe we'll just have so many people that um, have gone through it that there is a significant herd immunity and and then we can go back to i mean whatever normal is Certainly, I don't think we'll have these lockdowns for, for more than another month or so, at least I hope, um, because it, that creates, of course, a whole lot of collateral damage as well. So, um, yeah, What's yeah. the view in Korea, Brian, for you? you? You guys think that this is a long-term thing? It's hard to forecast? It's hard to forecast. Um, <clears throat> you know, we were... I guess, in a sense, lucky that, you know, China and Korea were, you know, one of the first two countries that were hit the hardest. And maybe we are now managing and flattening the curve ahead of everybody else. But when we look around the world, it's, you know, now it's Europe uh, and United States, but there are still places where um, the virus may just it's starting places like India, you know, which has just gone into like three week lockdown starting yesterday, I think. And the entire uh, continent of Africa uh, or even South America. So it, it's it's going around the world. And in days like this, when everybody, the air travel was so cheap and everybody's uh, traveling around the world, uh, we just don't know where the next wave is going to come from. So I, I do, um, agree with Felix that it's not going to end until either we have the vaccine or we have the herd immunity. Or we are able to move to Iceland and uh, you know, talk to talk our way through CCP games and Jachen and uh, sort of <laughs> get tested at the airport. Uh, his, I mean, I was talking to Jachen when this started and, and we had a discussion with uh, Artyom from GOG and, and, and we're like, you know what? This this feels like a good time to go to Iceland. And then I spoke to Jochen and Jochen said, don't do it. Because <laughs> we've got people skiing and coming back and no one is checking them at the airport. So just just so you know, you know, have no illusions. So they had this, uh, you know, several hundred cases and now they have the plan to test everyone on the island and then have a structured approach. So now it feels like, yeah, it's again, it's a good time to go to Iceland, <laughs> maybe New Zealand, because of the, like, basically you want to be in the country that has a responsible government and uh, a community that can react fast and that can innovate. And Lithuania now has asked the South Korean experts to develop the uh, program for dealing with this. And uh, even uh, Mr. Putin in Russia invited South Korean experts to go and advise Russia. So. I think like South Korea is getting a lot of great publicity, uh, showing that certain things can be done, whereas other countries would otherwise say, "Oh no, not possible, not possible, can't do it." No. You have to, you know, give in and uh, accept the damage. But if you look at Korea, you see, you know, it's possible. And uh, if you yeah, look at New but York, it's a combination. Yeah, it's a combination of uh, it was a combination of number of things: our fast response plus our healthcare system, and that second part. Um, just can't be helped in some parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. I'm very curious about Germany and how Germany resolves this thing, because Germany on one hand has a very robust healthcare system and a lot of reserve power. On the other hand, uh, if you reach Spiegel, then there's a lot of concern about the situation with nurses and the whole sort of for-profit hospital structure. So. Uh, 
that that probably will lead to some changes. But um, yeah, I think I think like moving to a different country for work and games industry now will be based on how the country is dealing with a crisis like this. Because you want to be maybe in Finland uh, or maybe in Denmark actually, which closed the schools, and Finland didn't close the schools for a long time. And I've seen a lot of games companies uh, or games people in the games industry in Helsinki being very furious with the mayor of Helsinki who said, you know what, let's do herd immunity or there's no proof that closing the schools help. And then people were discovering new things about their own country. It's like, really? Really? And so, yeah. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges in, in this entire thing is that it takes so long until you see whether those measures are helping. Um, and that just makes it really easy for people to say, oh, let's not do anything because look, all this stuff that we're doing that's so hard on the economy is not helping. Well, but I mean, this is my second week of everyone in, in at Osborne Clark, Germany working from home and I think across most of our offices. It's only the second week and it seems long for us to be to, to be in the lockdown for, for such a long time. Um, But um, in terms of the incubation period of this virus, uh, it's normal that we're not seeing anything yet. And we, we will need to wait another week or, or two until we can hopefully really see that everyone staying at home really made the difference. That we need that patience. And then I guess we'll just do the uh, next summit in Korea because everyone gets tested. So <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think if, we, you know, if we invite everyone to Vilnius in the summer, people be concerned uh, what the hell you know should I stay two weeks if you do it in Seoul then you get tested as you disembark so uh, you stay at the airport then you know if you've been let out of the airport then you're safe and we can you know <laughs> hug each other and have a drink and so on. Uh, I don't know I don't know jokes aside uh, that's that's one of the things that crossed my mind is that the safest place to have this will be in South Korea <laughs> in the next foreseeable 18 months so uh, I wonder if GDC 2021 shouldn't happen really in Seoul. And those who make it through, <laughs> you know, they enjoy the show. <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot for, for, for coming today and for uh, sharing your experience. And uh, hope to see you, <laughs> not before long, <laughs> but in any way to, to, to see you in the community. And thanks a lot for sharing all the details that you guys do on Discord, because I know that a lot of people follow your update appreciate uh, getting information directly thank you yeah. it's been thanks for having us